listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I'm Steve Yoder, and with me, as always, is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, a former reporter who used to tell these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. We've got a rare treat for you tonight. The start of a three-part series in which we interview a detective who spent nearly eight years chasing and catching a serial killer. Back in 2015, recently retired Talmadge Captain Doug Bohan, then a sergeant detective, asked if he could pull the file on a nearly 50-year-old unsolved murder. In tonight's episode, he's going to tell us about that case and a second homicide that he quickly came to believe was related. Then in part two, we'll hear about how Captain Bohan and his team assembled evidence that demonstrated a 40-year-long reign of terror by sexual predator Gus Affairs that left a string of victims, most of whom never got their day in court. And after that, part three, the trial that just ended in April and the nail-biting perspective of the investigators as court rulings tossed out so much evidence. Was there enough left for a jury to convict? For Captain Bohan, for any detective really, it was the case of a lifetime. This is the story of a criminal who kept slipping through the cracks of the justice system until he met his match. So let's get started. This is part one of To Catch a Killer. Captain Bohan, welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate you coming. We are so happy to have you back with us. It's not your first time with us. If our listeners think your name sounds familiar, it's because we interviewed you on another case from Talmadge that still remains unsolved. Ruth Guthrie, and I gotta stop for a second because if you hear me switch between Talmadge and Talmadge, it has been a lifelong struggle with me. That's okay. So, <laughs> but that uh, that other case we talked about was Ruth Guthrie, a young girl who was killed in the '60s. Since then, we've ta- since we talked to you last, you've retired. So, how's retirement? Are you bored yet? Yeah, a little bit, um, but you know, I try to keep busy. So, uh, uh, yeah, but it's good. Well, I'm glad we're going to be able to occupy you today. Uh, You know, before we get into the case, we want to know more about you. So were you originally from Talmadge? Uh, No, but I was born in Akron, raised in Springfield Township, Um, joined the Marines right out of high school, Springfield High School, and uh, traveled around a little bit, came back to the area, uh, worked in the private sector. My wife and I got married. Um, started raising a family, and uh, it wasn't until the age of 30 that I became a police officer at Talmadge kind of on a whim. So, What, what were you doing before? Um, after I left the Marines, I was working in the private sector. The last job I had, I was a human resources manager in a manufacturing company, uh, about 1,200 employees, and uh, you know, boring office job. And all my friends from the Marines were like, hey, you got to be a cop, you got to be a cop. And I was like, I, I don't know, you know, never, never... Was I that kid that wanted to be a policeman? You know, didn't grow up with that. But I took one test, uh, which we were living in Talmadge at the time. And so uh, I asked my wife to go get an application. It was due the next day. And uh, I just saw the uh, opening as I was checking uh, the Akron Beacon Journal, actually, for some one ads that we had run for a customer service rep. And right below that was a civil service test in the C's, you know, and uh, Talmadge civil service test. And so she went and got the application and 
I took one test, and the rest is history. They hired me and, and set me I'm on my so career. I'm so intrigued by that. So it wasn't this lifelong calling. No. Did it, did it become that calling once you got into it? I think did it's you? one of those things that when I got into it, I knew that that's where I belonged. You know, I mean, it, the investigative part of it, I loved. When I made detective and, and was working cases, that that was great. You know, I loved the camaraderie and and uh, it was it was yeah it was I found my niche. I think. So is Talmadge the only city that you've worked for? Yes. Your whole career there. How many years? Uh, I joined January of two thousand. Um, I had purchased my military time, so I was able to retire from there in twenty twenty two with my adequate number of years, like twenty six years of service. And um, that was that. Wow. Now, the Karen Benz case, uh, when did you become aware of that? Is that something everybody in the department was aware of? Yes, actually. You know, you come in and, and, you know, you're talking to the detectives, even as a patrolman. And, you know, they, you kind of hear about it. You know, yeah, we have a couple unsolved. You know, we have a couple unsolved cases. And they talk about Ruth Guthrie and they talk about Karen Benz. But really, my knowledge about them was very peripheral. You know, it was just... I had no idea about the details or anything, just that they were unsolved. And unfortunately, by that time, you know, we're talking about cases from the early 60s and 1970s. So the officers who worked on those cases had all retired by then, um, at least the original scenes. And in most cases, they passed away. So throughout my career, I'd always kind of been aware of that. And um, so when I was in the Detective Bureau uh, from 2000, I think, six until, or 2005 until about 2015, you always kind of want to dig them out you know you want to get a look at them but as your work as a detective goes in a small town there's always a case coming in and until it's solved there's another one on top of it and so to have that kind of free time is is difficult so I took Ruth out uh, in 2013 and began looking at her Um, and then unfortunately shortly after I did that we ended up with a a, I'm going to call it a real-time homicide um, in the case of uh, Daniel Ty murdering uh, Wendy and Peyton Ralston. And so we handled that case, and that took a while. And so by 2015, that case had gone to trial, was over, and, and I was leaving the detective bureau to go back to patrol, um, which is common for us. It's kind of a tour of duty. And uh, I thought, hey, I got some time now, you know. And so I went to the chief, asked him to look at Bent's, and he said, yeah, sure, whatever you want. And I did. And it, it takes a while, you know, because... Karen Bentz was murdered in April of 1970, and I was born in August of 1970, you know. So I'm going back into a case that occurred a few months before I was born. I have no historical context. I have no living detectives who were there at the scene to speak to. Um, The context of the time is different. So just, you know, I'm going through 70 pages of just investigative material, let alone notes and evidence, and you're just trying to ascertain who these people are, you know. And so when they mention a name, who is this? And it takes multiple readings to become familiar uh, and kind of gauge and get a context just for the case in and of itself. So that took a little bit of time. And then, of course, you want to make sure that you have the evidence still, which we did, which was good. Well, that was good because so many of those cases from, there seems like yes. there's so many oh, there um, are. reasons things get lost along the way. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the, the, the Karen Benz case. I mean, who was she? And tell us mm-hmm. about her last night. So Karen Bentz was 18 at the time she was murdered. Um, she had uh, a four-year-old daughter named Lori, so she had a daughter very young, um, and that daughter was by a, a gentleman named Harold Stoner, who himself has passed away. 
And her family didn't like Harold, as you can imagine. You know, uh, they got her daughter pregnant, and and well, she had something to do with it too. But you know, as parents are, you know, they were probably pretty upset. I mean, she was like fourteen, right? And we're not talking fourteen in two thousand twenty-three. We're talking fourteen in nineteen sixty-six. Uh, that stigma that goes with that time, which I think is incredibly important even as we get further in this case to understand because there's so many injustices in this case and how we treated victims of sexual assault and you know the persona of, of how the justice system and society treated women back then that you can imagine the parents were very upset she was pregnant uh, but she did have her child and by the age of 18 for Karen she was living alone I'm sorry she was living outside her parents home on North Arlington Street with her roommate and her parents uh, kind of encouraged that. They had custody of her daughter, Lori, uh, and they lived on Jewett, which was over there just off Bookdoor. And so as part of Karen wanting to get her child back um, and get custody of Lori, and the family was still very tight. You know, everyone you talk to, they were a very close family. But, you know, her parents had decided Karen had to prove something. She had to prove she was responsible. And... Uh, so Karen was working two jobs at the time of her murder. Uh, she was working at the um, Lawson's, which became Dairy Mart's in the area. And then she was working at the Red Barn restaurant on Market Street. And so she was working two jobs and living with a roommate in an apartment and trying to show her parents that she was responsible enough to get custody of Lori. And it was that night in a warm April night of 1970 where she had just gotten off her second job. She had worked the morning at Red Barn. She had then left the Red Barn, worked at the Lawson's on South Main Street. Her sister had arrived about 10.30 that night at Lawson's with a couple of boys and gave her a ride home to her parents' house on Jewett. And so, as I said, Karen lived on North Arlington, but it was like, I think it was 52 North Arlington or something. So really, the, the distance between Jewett and her parents' home and her apartment on North Arlington was only about four-tenths of a mile. So she could walk it. And that night, uh, she arrived back at her parents' house around 11 p.m. with her sister. Uh, she said goodnight to Lori. Her mom had done some of her laundry, and so Karen had uh, collected that up. She had like a container of potato salad that she had brought from Lawson's that she was going to take to her roommate. Her roommate had requested, and her roommate was a female. And... Um, so she was just walking home, and it was a very unseasonably warm night, you know, in April of 1970, April 29th, 1970. It was actually, I think, even at that hour, it was in the upper 60s or low 70s. And so she decided to walk home that evening, and the last time she was seen was leaving her parents' house on Jewett. A neighbor across the street saw her cross over Bookdoor Avenue, and that was the last anyone saw her alive other than the suspect, I would assume. So tell us a little bit about that early investigation. I mean, what did law enforcement do back in 1970? What did they learn? And take us up to the time when this case gets cold. Okay. Well, her body was discovered on um, Indian Hills Drive in Talmadge, which at that time, in April of 1970, was a brand new allotment. And so the road had been put in, the storm sewers had been put in, um, so you had a concrete street and curbs, a model home was what would be considered, I guess, several uh, lots, housing lots, down from where her body was discovered. But where she was discovered, it was quite literally right off the curb in the dirt where they had done some clearing of trees and were eventually going to start building houses, which are still there today. And I think her body was located in what today would be in front of, I think, 259 Indian Hills Drive. 
And so when she was discovered, she was discovered by a man who was driving uh, to work that morning. And um, Coleman Pinkston was his name. I think he worked at Goodyear. And he drove down that road and saw the body of, of Karen. I saw a woman's body. And she was, like I said, like literally almost touching the curb um, in the dirt. Uh, her face had been covered by uh, a jacket, which I'm sure he didn't know at the time, but a piece of clothing. Very, um, a lot of blood in this one on her, her clothing. So it was pretty apparent to him that she was deceased. So he went down the road, no cell phones at that day, right? So he pounds on a door and he gets uh, a gentleman uh, to come to the door and says, basically a girl's been killed down the street. So they call the police, the police arrive and we have uh, Captain Knapp, um, we have uh, Sergeant Dave Williams, uh, Chief Dreamack. You know, the, the PD wasn't extremely big at that point in time. It was still a small town. And so they show up and, you know, in, in a sign of the times, you know, instead of crime scene tape, you know, they have a, a piece of rope that they just kind of lay around, you know, to establish a perimeter to protect. They call the coroner's office out and they have a coroner investigator named Doug Jenny, who uh, is still around today, thankfully, and testified in court. Uh, but he's the only one, unfortunately. And so uh, they call out the coroner's investigator and, and as, as they're kind of um, trying to ascertain what's going on here, uh, you know, obviously someone's been killed, but they don't know who this girl is. There's no purse around. There's no belongings around. You know, she's just clothed, clearly very bloody. Um, and But they note that her, on her right hand is a, a class ring. And so um, after they search the area and they kind of search her body and, and, and process the scene, I'm going to say, um, they remove this uh, class ring and they find out that it's, they determine it's pretty much from Central Howard High School in Akron. And on the inside are two initials, uh, KB. And that's all they have right then, except for on East Avenue, about a half a mile away, on a road that, um, so Indian Hills, if you go north, is going to intersect with East Avenue. And if you take East Avenue west, it'll come back to the Talmadge Circle and back towards Akron. And so in the 200 block of East Avenue, on the north side of the road, are all these belongings, these clothes, a container of potato salad, a notebook. And they're all spread over a few hundred yards. And so one of the officers who worked the night before, his name is Dave Christ, and he's also uh, gone. But everyone tells me he was this most meticulous guy, and they all said, look, he had like a photographic memory. He would tell you something, and he was very exact. And in his report, he wrote that he saw those items on the road, and I think he said 11.49 p.m. I mean, that's a very exact time. You know, you don't see that. You know, officers today might be close to midnight or, you know, something. But he was very exact. And to not have associated those items with this event, to be that precise, tells you a little bit about Mm -hmm. Officer Christ. So anyway, he noted that those items were there at about 11.49. And so they start looking at these items. They really don't know yet if they're related, but they're there and they're odd. And so on the front of one of the notebooks um, is... Karen and Bob. I think it says Bob Verado, okay? But it's the name Karen. And so they collect up these clothing items. There's like a pack of cigarettes, matchbooks, notebook, her clothes, uh, some undergarments, things, which clearly were the things that her mother had laundered for her. And they process the scene and collect all these things up. And then they go to Central Howard High School, and they have a description of Karen, you know, her approximate height and weight, the color of her hair was kind of light brown blonde. 
And they begin talking to the counselor there and ask if uh, they could look at the class ring purchase records. And through this investigation, real quick, they pretty much come to the conclusion Karen Bentz is the one who ordered that ring. That matches the KB on the inside of the ring. Karen matches the Karen on the notebook. And so they uh, call up Karen's parents and they get the number from the school for the house. They get their mother and, and Doug Jenny and uh, Sergeant Doug, Dave Williams, uh, who is the detective on the case from Talmadge, go to the Bentz home and inform them that they believe it may be Karen who was killed. And through that process, they positively make the identification and the investigation begins. And so during that investigation, they talk to a lot of people. A lot of people uh, that Karen worked with, Karen knew, went to school with, dated. She dated a lot of guys, you know. Um, and this was one of those things that the defense, of course, later would, would bring up. And, and uh, one of the frustrations with, with evidence and the rules of evidence at a trial. But they go through this entire case. They polygraph a number of people. Um, they verify alibis, and uh, you know I don't know how long you want to make this, but after a few months, and they even involve Akron Police Department because they had a lot more resources. And so what ends up happening is you have about 12 to 15 detectives between Akron and Talmadge working this case incessantly for days on end. And anyone, I mean, even remotely considered someone that might be a person of interest is talked to their ver- and their alibis are verified. And some of those names that came up were a guy by the name of Lester Harvey Duncan and Michael Morris and some other folks who, who she was dating at the time. And for example, you ask your parents who might have done this. And her parents are like, well, we think Harold Stoner might have had something to do with it because they didn't like Harold, you know. But Harold was dating another woman at that time, another girl. He was actually living with her. And they were living with her family. So it wasn't just Harold and this girl who could verify his alibi. It was a whole family. And so quickly they rule Harold out. Her current boyfriend was working, but he worked night shift at B.F. Goodrich as a draftsman, I think. And so they went there. They talked to his boss. They got his work records. And clearly at the time of her murder, he was working. And so they're quickly ruling some of these people that are very close to her out. But then, of course, in any investigation, there's all these rumors of who might have had something to do with it. And you have to track down each and every one of those. And so for the course of the next months, six months or even longer, these investigations and the 70 single-space pages that they involve are nothing more than them going back and verifying who is who, what were they doing, what is their alibi, can we verify the veracity of that alibi, and can we link these folks in any way, shape, or form to this murder, be it motive, be it physical evidence, or anything. And for example, I'll give you a couple like uh, her ex-boyfriend's brother, uh, Harold's brother, um, was a a guy that had a criminal record, you know, a violent criminal record, weapons and things like that. And so when they're interviewing him, because they're like, well, maybe if Harold wanted to offer, maybe her brother did it or something, right? Uh, Whatever conclusion you might think of. So they're interviewing him and they notice a red dot on his watch band. So they take it and they test it and it's paint. Um, But, you know, you're thinking, well, could it be blood? And so they're going through meticulously everything. And they did a tremendous job back then for having what they had to work with. Hair fibers, fingerprints from those items that are on East Avenue, all tested. You know, nothing comes back. You don't have anything conclusive. And so it comes down to um, there's just nowhere else to look. Nothing is fitting. Did the name Gus Safaris show up in any of those records? Yeah, great question. Um, So initially, no. Uh, And... As we get into uh, Gus's history, I think you'll see that you know by 1970, he had very little activity. He had one, one arrest. Uh, after Karen's murder is when he really picks up. And so he was not in that case file anywhere in the original investigations. However, 
by the time I looked at the case file in 2015, there was two pieces of paper in there, 11 by 17 notebook papers. And on the top of it, it said, Gustafar suspect. And on that were a series of uh, cases where he had been arrested, um, suspected, and it was a little bit uh, light. You know, it would be like it would have a name on it, um, like Karen Bentz. You know, Karen Bentz was on there. And, you know, white female, 18 years old, light brown hair, um, stabbed and strangled, you know. When did that show up in the file? So... It had to show up sometime after 1976 because the last entry was 1976. Okay. And I subsequently learned that how that piece of paper got in there was by a guy named Mike Duval, who was our former, my former chief. And he spent some time in the Detective Bureau, and he's the one who actually entered this case into the FBI's VICAP. Well, Mike's dad was Ed Duval, a kind of well-known detective in Akron PD. And Ed actually worked the Karen Benz case for us with our guys. And so Ed has his own files at home. And, and at some point in Ed's life, he's putting it together. You know, he's like, man, let's look at this guy, Sapphires. You know, by this time in 1976, you get this huge history on him, a series of rapes, some convictions, some acquittals, some no charges, you know, you've, and, and, and you're looking at this guy and you're like, wow, you know, we got these murders that fit. We got all this stuff. So he's putting motive together. He's putting all these similarities together, you know, this MO and you can see his notes are there. But it's just that, you know, it would be Karen Bentz, white female, 18, you know, stabbed and, uh, stabbed and strangled, you know. So uh, it was light, but it was there, you know. And so Mike said, yeah, when I was going through my dad's files after he passed away, I found these two sheets of paper. It said Gus Safaris on it. Karen Bentz was on this sheet of paper. So I put it in the Karen Bentz case file. And it was that simple. And so, you know, for me, it was like, well, that's an interesting piece of paper when I'm looking at this. But nowhere in the original investigation is Gus Safaris mentioned anywhere. And so while I look at this piece of paper, I'm like, yeah, here's a guy that I would look at too. There's no connection still, you know? And so that came later. Let's, um, let's jump up to Loretta Jean Davis. Sure. Now, when did she come to your attention and how did you tie this together? So Loretta Jean Davis came to my attention because she, uh, in a couple of ways, um, one, I believe that she was on that piece of paper that Ed had uh, put together. But also, I became aware uh, through BCI uh, DNA analysts that Loretta Jean Davis uh, had some evidence that they submitted in, I think it was 2008 or 2009, for DNA analysis. And that DNA analysis came back with a um, consistent or profile consistent with Gus Seferis. But when you look at these DNA uh, tests and, and the, the results, people are very used to DNA evidence that says, well, this, this person will be included in this profile in a, at a, a probability ratio of one in 72 trillion, right? So it has to be this person. Well, with Gus, we had a DNA profile that was touch DNA. It's not blood, it's not semen, it's not saliva. And blood, semen, and saliva are where you get those really big numbers, you know. Touch DNA, you're going to expect a smaller number. And then you also have touch DNA that's almost 50 years old, and it's deteriorated in, over time. And so the profile probability for Gus was 1 in 351, which means that potentially you would expect to see that you're only getting a few points of comparison, right? You're getting over the minimum number required, but you're not getting this full profile, but the profile that we have matches 
Gus's affairs. He's, he's consistent with his DNA, but it potentially, according to our analysis, would be consistent with one out of every 351 males in the population. So strong and important, but not those big numbers, right? And so you're like, okay, I, I, I see, you know? Um, but his name came up, and I'm like, well, he's also in this and, and our case file. And so Loretta Jean Davis came to me as one of those other acts evidence that we were originally looking at. And I didn't look deeply into her case initially until I ended up getting a DNA profile from the Bentz case on Seferis. And then everything opened up. So tell us a little bit about Loretta Jean Davis, mm-hmm. um, who she was and her last night. Loretta was uh, a big girl. She was very uh, athletic, is my understanding. She rode dirt bikes. She rode horses. She was an incredible majorette. She was six feet tall, um, slender, shy, uh, though I, I spoke to a friend of hers from high school who was like, she, you know, she wasn't shy, but to everyone who wasn't close to her, she was very shy. She wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't get into a car with someone she didn't know, things like that. She just So her last night on, on, on Earth, she had gone to a movie with a friend, um, a friend who was a boy. She got home before midnight, and as was normal for her, uh, according to her family, she would sometimes go out after midnight and grab a hamburger. And so she, Where is she from? I'm sorry. Yeah, she's from Brimfield. Brimfield. She, but she lived on Old Forge and not far outside of the Talmadge city limits. Um, so Eastwood Avenue, coming out of Akron, runs through Talmadge and turns into Old Forge. And so she lived on Old Forge, and uh, she gets in her car, a 74 Plymouth Duster, and she leaves a note for her mom, I'm going to go get something to eat. And this was after midnight in September uh, 28th, I believe. I could be wrong. It could be the 29th. We're going from memory here. Um, but it was September of 1975. And so she leaves her home after midnight, and she goes, and she drives into Kent, and uh, we learned that she stopped at a Burger Chef, and she got a hamburger, and she would eat in her car and drive around, maybe listen to music. I'm not sure. No one knows. But she was seen by a couple friends from high school driving down through Kent, and uh, that was just after midnight. The next time she is seen is by two other people that know her, one of whom is a woman that actually worked um, with Loretta for Loretta's mother who owned her own, her own business. It was kind of like a data entry business back in the day. And they would work in an office, and sometimes they would work out of, out of Loretta's home. So she knew Loretta well. She knew the family well. And everyone knew Loretta's car. It was a 74 green Plymouth Duster with mag wheels. And so later that night, it's a Sunday morning now, Saturday night, early Sunday morning, at about 2.30, these two folks are driving down just off of Talmadge Circle on Southeast Avenue. And they get to these railroad tracks, which are up now but used to be there, Right, and it's right where the McDonald's is off the circle. And just past that used to be an auto parts store. There's still a building there today, and I think it's 51 Southeast Avenue or something. It's right across from the old you know, Henry Beers. And um, they see some things. They see uh, a silver car, which they thought was a Chrysler Cordoba at the time. And they see that car parked next to Loretta's car. And they, as they're driving by, they're coming home from a party, you know, um, and it's 2.30 in the morning, and they live on the southeast side of town, which, so they're not stopping, but they see into this car, and they see Loretta very clearly. They can identify her as sitting in this silver car, not hers. And they saw her there with a white male, uh, medium-length brown hair, wearing a blue jacket. And they thought, well, that's really odd that Loretta would be 
in a car. At first, they thought the owner of the Cordoba was the boss of the male witness in the car because his boss had just bought a Chrysler Cordoba. First year that those had come out, and it was silver. And he thought, why is Loretta in the car with my boss? And that was the association he made right away. But his boss had a big afro at the time, and this guy did not have that. So he immediately knew it wasn't his boss, but they knew it was Loretta, and they drive on. They didn't think anything of it. They just thought it was odd. And so a couple days later, well, I guess I should say, later that Sunday, um, that's the last time anyone saw Loretta alive. And later on that Sunday at about noon, about 12.15 or so, just after church, a woman on Congress Lake Road in Southfield Township goes to check her mailbox, and there, just off the roadway, about four feet in the tall grass, is the body of Loretta Jean Davis. And um, she had been um, stabbed, just like Karen Benson had been stabbed. Um, she in the chest with a small bladed weapon. But she'd only been stabbed twice, and we didn't talk about this with Karen, but Karen had been stabbed about 13 times and severe strangulation in Karen's. It was quite a fight that she had. There was not a lot of blood at the scene on, on Loretta. Uh, the one stab wound uh, went uh, in and out of her breast. It never entered her chest cavity. And the second in stab wound uh, went right into her heart. So immediate, immediate death. No strangulation was apparent. There was no bruising or anything. But her death seemed to be pretty quick. So essentially two stab wounds. Uh, and one obviously fatal and very effective. So there wasn't a lot of blood. All the blood in the autopsy was literally in her chest cavity. So there wasn't a lot of blood at the scene like there was at Karen. But she had been partially disrobed. Her shirt... A flowered print was a button-up shirt, and that shirt had been kind of rolled up to a point where it exposed her breasts at the scene where she was dumped. The strange thing about that was when you rolled the shirt back down, there were two stab holes in it consistent with those on her body. So she had been stabbed while clothed, but dumped, exposed. Her pants were also unbuttoned and unzipped and pulled down to a level where her pubic hair was exposed. And that area, that waistband, zipper area is actually where the touch DNA evidence came from, which was consistent with Seferis. So you could consider that that evidence, you know, was in a location that's important. Uh, probably, the, clearly the killer had probably unzipped her pants and pulled them down, and just like he had done with her shirt. And within the folds of her shirt was a small piece of a knife blade. Well, a small piece of plastic that was consistent with what would be on the end of a steak knife at the time. And that was discovered at autopsy as well. Immediately apparent also on the bottoms of her shoes were red carpet fibers, very vivid red carpet fibers. And her shoes kind of had a gummy rubber on the bottom of them. And there was also on the bottom of her jeans, like at the bottom of her pants legs. So detectives at the time noted all of this. They noted the carpet fibers. They noted the, um, the piece of the knife handle or the piece of the plastic. And they recovered all of these things at the time. And that's when the search began. But... They still didn't know who they had. There was no identification on Loretta. There was no car keys. There were no belongings again. There was nothing there. And so this is around noon or so uh, on September, in September of 75. And by midnight that night, they receive a call from Loretta's mom, and she wants to report her daughter missing. And, you know, it's one of those things, I think, that most parents do. Um, they establish this arbitrary deadline in their, in their head. You know, if my child's not home by this time, then I'm going to call. And I can see that. You know, I think we can all see that. And so, but just after midnight, a report comes into Portage County Sheriff's that our daughter Loretta is missing. And the detectives are like, okay. So they get with the family, and very quickly, 
um, they do two things. They put out a, uh, they learn that she had a car. They put out a be on the lookout for that car. And within 45 minutes, the Talmadge Police Department says, we have her car. And it is in the exact spot on Southeast Avenue, still parked, where those witnesses saw her parked next to that silver car. And the family positively identifies Loretta Jean Davis as the victim. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Was her face covered like Karen's? Yes. Great question also. So the body positioning of Karen Benz is always something that really bothered me in this case. It was very unnatural, and I could show you some pictures. But to describe it, she is on her left side. Her right knee is pulled up incredibly high, like almost to her chest. Her right arm is draped behind her back, yet her left arm is extended out in front of her as though she's reaching. It's really odd to me because if you're going to dump a body, you're going to pull it by its feet, and if you do that, maybe the arms will both come up. You're going to pull it under the arms, in which case both legs will probably be straight, or you're going to pull it by its wrists, in which case both legs will probably be straight, and then the arms will be something. And generally, the body will be on its front or its back. But she was on her side, and it just... This unnat- and, but yet there was dirt on her, the back of her thighs and her buttocks. So you could see she was dragged for a short period as she left the car or as she was dumped. And so, and of course her face was covered by her, her jacket. What did this mean to you? It just, you know, I know there's a lot of things you learn over the years. People say, oh, if, if, the, if the victim's face is covered, it means this or it means that. I didn't really delve into the meaning. I just knew it wasn't right. It wasn't, wasn't. I couldn't explain it. And I didn't want to reach any conclusions at that time because I didn't think the data supported any conclusions. You know, I didn't want to say, oh, this is someone who knew her or they regretted it and that's why they covered their face. I didn't know, but it was it was just a fact. It was something that wasn't right. It wasn't natural to me. I couldn't explain it. And the same with uh, Loretta. You know, she was on her back, but a little bit on her side, left side. Her arms were up over her head and her shirt was covering her face. So those similarities were there. I noted that, you know, even though her pants had been pulled down a little bit uh, and Karen's weren't, I also noted that Karen was wearing a jumper. And so her jumper was a one-piece. So you couldn't pull her pants down without taking her complete shirt off. It was just like, you know, it was, I don't skirts sh- or something? I don't know what they yeah. called them, right? Yeah. But it was like these short skirts, but it was also tied to her top, and it was a one-piece. So I noted that, you know, I'm looking at this case for Loretta, and I'm like, yeah, you know, the body, the position, the face cover, the stab wounds, you know, yeah, that's all. I'm seeing some consistencies, but, you know, as yet, you're still, you're still learning, right? You're putting it together. 
But that's how Loretta was found, and they also had some tire tracks leaving the scene. It wasn't anything they could get plaster castings on. It had been like a peel-out, you know, but they could tell there was a car there. First of all, who had Loretta's case? Was that Portage County? Yeah, so the Portage County Sheriff's investigated, because generally when you take a case, it's where the body is discovered. They have jurisdiction. And so they still had jurisdiction when I was looking at that. And that's why I was when I was looking at Loretta Jean Davis, I was still kind of looking at it under the the guise of an other acts evidence, you know. But I did learn that by 1976, uh, there were no suspects in the Loretta Jean Davis case except Seferis, who had just been named a year later. So, the, you know, I looked at the investigation, and again, it was much like Ben's. They investigated everyone. They questioned everyone close to her, boyfriends at the time, ex-boyfriends at the time, family members, people close to her, co-workers, checking alibis, doing all those things. And, you know, to not be too detailed, they did all that. And, you know. So Karen's killed in 1970. Mm-hmm. Loretta's killed in 1975. The first time there's evidence that anybody was thinking of Gus Safaris is he appears in both of their files in 1976. Yeah, so... What happened? So I don't know that Gus's piece of paper arrived in the case file of Karen Benson in 1976. I think that Ed Duvall was putting it together sometime after 1976. Could have been in the 80s or something, right? But what happens is these his history begins to start coming into play in the Loretta Jean Davis case. And so how this case kind of broke in 1975 and 1976 by the Portage County Sheriff's, unfortunately for us, two surviving detectives, uh, Pat Walter and uh, Ron Snyder, were still alive. And so was the coroner investigator in that case, Vic Biasella. And so we were able to interview these guys, which was very helpful rather than just reading investigations, you know. So what happened is they go through the entire era of 1975. And what's incredible about it is the amount of work that they did. And just to, and I, don't, I know this isn't, this ha- pertains to evidence. So you got the carpet fibers, right? And you got this silver car and you have a suspect who says that car was a Cordoba. So the amount of work that those investigators did, that, that piece of information right there, sent that investigation down a path, which we learned was the wrong path. But it was a path. That's really all they had. And so they focused on a 1975 silver Chrysler Cordoba. They went to Chrysler. They found how many had been sold in Western PA, North Ohio, um, all over the area. How many silver? How many had carpet fibers? They went out and they collected all these records from Chrysler and sales, and they got carpet samples, you know, from all these other Chrysler Cordobas. And they sent all these carpet samples to the BCI lab, and not one of them was a match or consistent with the carpet fibers on the bottom of Loretta's shoes. And so they're going down this entire path of all of these witnesses, all of these boyfriends, all these potential persons of interest, all of this evidence, trying to track down where this piece, this knife handle might have come from, what kind of knives had it, what type of plastic was it, all these things. And there's nothing. They can't get any matches. You know, these Cordobas, they just weren't adding up. And so the case grows what we call cold. It just becomes kind of inactive. There's just nothing else to look at. But in 1976, in October, 13 months after Loretta's found, you have a Calga Falls detective call up Portage County and say, we just arrested this guy, and you might want to look at him because he's good for some stuff. And so the detectives go to the jail, uh, the Summit County Jail, the Portage County detectives, and they interview Gus Safaris. It's a very short interview, you know. Did you know Loretta Jean Davis? Nope, never heard of her, never saw her, don't know what you're talking about. Do you own a Chrysler Cordoba? Nope, never owned a Cordoba, don't know what you're talking about. 
Would you take a polygraph? Nope, and I want my lawyer. And that was pretty much the end of it right there. Never knew a Loretta Jean Davis, never knew a Loretta, never you know, showed her a picture, not familiar, whatever. Want my lawyer. So they're like, okay, and they begin doing a little background on Gus Ferris. And they get his criminal history at that time, which he had developed a criminal history by 1976, um, which the investigators in 1970 for Karen Benz did not have. And so they're like, hey, this guy attacks women. Like his entire history is nothing more than violence towards women. There's no DUIs. There's no drug possession. There's no theft. It's violence towards women, rape, sexual assault. And so they're looking at this guy and the investigators, uh, they get his criminal history at that time. And the, the investigators from Portage County focus, rightly so, on one particular case that is incredibly similar to Loretta Javis. And that is a Huntington, West Virginia case. In 1972, um, a little bit about Seferis, uh, by that time he had married a woman uh, that he had just met. She had two children of her own, and maybe three, and, uh, but they weren't his. And uh, she owned a, an employment business and was just smitten with, with Gus Seferis, just thought he was the greatest thing, and left her husband to marry Gus. And this employment agency was in Akron. And so they moved to Huntington, West Virginia to open up a new employment agency. And while down there, uh, there's some instances of domestic violence and whatnot, but there's also this 1972 abduction and rape of a young girl where he was actually arrested and a hung jury resulted from that trial. But what was significant about that case was this was a young girl who was driving around at 2.30 in the morning alone in her car. And as she comes up, she had just met her boyfriend. Um, she was 22 at the time, I believe. She had met her boyfriend. Uh, he lived on the east side of town. She lived on the west side of town. And they would meet at uh, Marshall University in Huntington and have their dates. They were intimate that night. And they ended up, you know, even after this, staying together and are still married to this day. Wonderful woman. Incredibly brave. And um, I love her. And so she uh, um, is driving home. She's three-tenths of a mile from her home. And she's stopped at a stoplight on a bridge, and her car's bumped from behind. So she did what she was always told to do, like we're all told to do. You pull over to the side, and she begins, you know, and then you stop. And out walks this unidentified male to her that she did not know, dressed very well, very charming, uh, and says, hey, it's cold. It's January 1972. It's a cold night. Why don't you get in my car? We'll exchange information. And she's like, no, that's okay. You know, and he's like, no, you get in my car. It'll be okay. You know, it's warm up. It's cold out here. You know, I don't want to stand out here. No, she, she, she doesn't want to do that. So she goes back to her car. She opens the driver's door. She sits down in the driver's seat. She gets her insurance card out. She's going to exchange information. She's seated with her feet outside the car, but she's sitting on the driver's seat with the door open. And right in front of her, this male, Gus Safaris, just walks right up close to her to the point where she surprised her. She looks up and he has a knife in his hand. And she's like, are you kidding me? You know, well, he grabs her and the struggle is on, the fight is on, you know, and he forces her into his car at knife point, forces her to get into the car, forces her down onto the floorboard of the passenger side of the car. And he drives off with her. She attempts to get the knife out of his hands at one time and it doesn't work. So he drives her to a remote location and forces her to disrobe. And, um, as is kind of a, a normal thing, he uh, wants to rape her, but he, he can't. He's, he has some issues in that area. 
and um, he can't uh, get an erection. And so he forces her to perform oral sex, and she refuses. And he grabs her around the throat and just starts shaking the hell out of her, just strangling her hard, almost to the point where she can't breathe. And she finally squeaks out, okay, okay. And he's like, okay, what? She goes, whatever you want. And so um, she performs oral sex until he gets an erection, then he, he vaginally rapes her. Now, when that's over with, um, strangely enough, he drives her back. And he stops about 100 yards from her car, tells her to get dressed and get out. And if she turns around and looks at him, he's going to run her over. So she's walking back to her car in the middle of the night. It's like 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning, maybe even later. And she's, she says, I'm just waiting for the engine to start revving. And if he does, I'm thinking, where can I jump? Where can I jump? You know? But he doesn't. He just turns around and he drives off. She has no idea who this guy is. She goes home and she says, I did what everyone told me not to do. I took a shower. I scrubbed myself. You know, I was dirty. I was violated. I didn't know who to tell. I couldn't tell my parents. They were very religious. They'd be destroyed by this information. I just couldn't tell anyone. And she, she said after a few weeks, she's keeping all this in, and it's just really bothering her. She's having a lot of trouble, and she gets mad. And she says, you know, I'm going to find out who this guy is. And she kept telling me, she goes, Huntington's not a big town, you know. And so I was down there in Huntington myself, you know, as part of this case. And she's right. It's really not a big town. She goes, I drove around. I drove around and I found the car. How she found the car was that on the dashboard, when the beams were high, the the headlight beams were high, a little thing would light up. And it was some kind of design, unique. And she knew that design. And she wrote it down in some notes. And she went to a friend who worked on cars. And he told her what kind of make and model had that. And so she knew the make and model, she knew the color, and she drove around until she saw it. She stopped, she watched the car, and lo and behold, here he comes. And she knew it was him because obviously she'd been up close and personal. And at that point, when she identified him with that car, she went to the police, filed a report. They did a search warrant on his apartment uh, where he was living at the time with his wife and her two, uh, two teenage children. And as part of the search warrant, they also searched the car. And in the car, they found this steak knife. Now, this is 1972. And it's a single steak knife. And to me, it became a vital piece of evidence. And so uh, the detectives then, they knew that, you know. And there were things that uh, this, this woman, whose name I, I can't mention, but she's uh, from Huntington, West Virginia. But she gave us little details, too. You know, like, hey, uh, when I went back to my car, my purse was on the, it was open. I had been in there getting information out. It was seated on the passenger front seat. And... Uh, why that's significant is it's these, these tiny little bits of information that add up. That's exactly where Loretta Jean Davis's purse was found, open on the front passenger seat of her car when we found it in Talmadge. And so, and her keys were missing. And so uh, the woman in Huntington, West Virginia said that Seferis reached into her car while he was standing next to the driver's door and turned her car off, touching her keys. Didn't take him, but turned it off. And so we never found Loretta's keys. And um, so you, you get all these little pieces of information. I think the detectives, you know, rightly so, just like me, you're looking at this and you're like, I worked personally as, a, as an officer in Talmadge for many years. And that is one of the most accident-prone, Talmadge Circle is the most accident-prone intersection like in Northeast Ohio for years, right? Little, little bumper bumps, you know, little bump. Yes. And I'm like, how easy would that have been to just bump Loretta Jean Davis and this girl pulls over to the side of the road under a light uh, in a business just off the circle, which is how we found her car. And so you're like, I can see that scenario playing out here. 
And um, I think those Porch Can detectives obviously did too. And that's why they went and they collected that knife and they brought it back in the late 70s to the property room at the Portage County Sheriff's Office, which was great. And um, Before we leave the Huntington, why mm-hmm. don't you wrap up? What happened in that Huntington case? Yeah, that was a terrible, terrible case. And I, I mean, it was a good case, you know, I felt. But it just breaks your heart. This is one of those uh, cases where it's just this injustice of the time. And so... Again, like with this entire case, you're trying to put yourself in the context of that historical moment. And I'm thinking, okay, we are in Huntington, West Virginia. Um, kind of conservative, right? You know, that area of the country, you know, uh, 1972, what's going on in the world? You know, Vietnam, free love hippies, Cambodia, right? There's this real divide in our country with beliefs, kind of like now, right? Yeah. And here's this young girl who at 22 years old... Um, has to be a witness in a rape trial and tell everyone what happened to her. But she's willing to do that. So she shows up. She's notified that the trial's going to go. She'd never met with the prosecutor prior to that. The prosecutor had never met with her before trial, which is incredibly crazy, um, to say the least. She shows up, and she has a, a skirt on. She goes, it wasn't even a short skirt. And he starts berating her immediately, the prosecutor makes her undo her skirt, push it down to where it's below her knees. So now her butt's kind of hanging out, right? She has to get safety pins to keep it in place. And then he makes her put her coat on. And she says, when I took the stand, I looked like a hobo, you know? And in walks the defendant, dressed in a suit and tie. He's got his wife with him, her two children. They're all dressed very nice. And she said, the one thing I remember about the trial is the defense attorney made a huge deal about the fact that I was wearing moccasins. And in my mind, and this is just hypothetical, but I'm like, I can see where she was portrayed as a free love hippie, a college student, 22 years old, moccasin wearing, free love hippie. And the defense was from Gus, consensual sex, you know? And I'm thinking that doesn't even add up at all. You know, I mean, here's a girl who admits on the stand that, look, I met my boyfriend. We were intimate. So, you know, you just met your boyfriend. You've been intimate. You're driving home. Someone bumps you in the back. And then the first thing you want to do is jump in bed with him. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous, right? So, but that's what it was. And, you know, in these cases, you only have to convince one person of having, you only have to have doubt. One person has to have doubt. I don't know what the split was in the jury, but the result was a hung jury no verdict, and the prosecutor just let the case go away. The, I, have, I got all the court records, you know, and so the motions were going, and after so long, hey, the defense makes a motion, the prosecution hasn't filed, you got so much longer to refile this case if you want to, there's a time limit, and they just let it expire. No one ever told her why they didn't go back. And so for, I don't know, 50 years, this woman had never had justice for that. And you know, she's one of the most amazing, and when you... This is going to sound really bad, and I don't, I don't want it to. I've investigated a lot of cases, you know, and the sad reality of sexual assault, assaults are that the majority of them don't get uh, reported, and sometimes they're reported sexual assaults that weren't, you know. Sometimes people make things up. My point is, when you get a victim who's been truly raped, truly victimized, it's very apparent immediately and especially one that never got justice. She had a calendar 
from 1972, 50 years later, that she had kept. It showed the date she was raped. It had notes that she had written about the event, a map, because she didn't know where he took her. You know, she was forced down into the floorboard of the car. She had no idea where she was. She just remembered seeing certain signs. She's trying to figure out where she was. And she had drawn a map the day she found him and wrote the license plate down on a calendar from 1972 that she kept in her home for 50 years, even though the case had been acquitted. She never talked to anyone about that case after the trial until I knocked on her door in 2018. And she still had all those things. That's a victim. You know, that is a true victim who never saw justice and, and in fact, saw a lot of injustice. And And if she had seen justice, Loretta Jean Davis would be alive. Isn't that the truth? And not to mention at least one other woman (laughs) and several rape victims. Yes. Why don't you take us briefly through Gustafaris' crimes? Obviously, you're looking at him now. Mm -hmm. What what else are you looking? Because that's just the tip of the iceberg. It is. What else did he do? Yeah, so it was actually 1969 where he was first... uh, arrested for assaulting a woman. And I believe, given what I had found there, and and she has passed away subsequently, unfortunately. And of course, all the officers that worked that case, they too had passed away. So we couldn't get that case in, even offer it in, for consideration of other acts of evidence. um, Into the trial. Into the trial. But it was good information. And that information was that he had used uh, actually a handgun in that case. And, and that, to me, that's important, and I can tell you why. But So he meets this woman that I think, according to records, he actually worked with. I think she was a co-worker of his at Roadway Express at the time. They were both working there. He called her for a date. They made up, and he tries to force her to have sex. And he says that she just opened the glove box and saw the handgun there. She says that he used the handgun to try to force her. Whatever the case is, he um, this is uh, May of 1969. Gus Seferis had been out of the Army for about... Um, two years by this time. And um, he's working there. He's working in his parents' restaurant. And she actually convinces him to not, to stop the attack. I don't know how she did it. She's not around. I can't ask her. Maybe it was the fact that he knew her. and She knew him. I don't know. But when he does let her go, she immediately files charges for this. And he's arrested for, I think, abduction and attempted rape. He pleads that case down to essentially assault the deadly weapon. To me, that case is important, and the inserting of the firearm is important, and the fact that he pled to assault with a deadly weapon is important, because after that, you never see a firearm. And you only see, um, the only weapon you will ever see, and it's not used in every case, is that steak knife. And I thought, you know, I've talked to Gus, you know, I've spent hours with this guy. He's not stupid. He learns, like most people learn, and what a, a great weapon to keep in your car, um... To me, not for assaulting someone. It's very flimsy and, and not sturdy. But at the same time, it's also unassuming. And, you know, he's working in a restaurant where, that his parents owned. Uh, you know, you get stopped by the cops and there's a steak knife in your car. You say, I'm sorry, I work at a restaurant. You know, okay, no big deal, right? It's not a hunting knife. It's, you know, nothing big. Right. So a great way to have a nondescript weapon at hand that you're not going to have to get another charge for. And he doesn't like. And that is the only case that he'd ever pled guilty to. And he pled guilty to two, a lesser charge. And so by that time, he becomes uh, he pleads and he ends up on probation for two years. And that was a significant piece to me of evidence because that the jury didn't get to hear. I ended up getting his probation records at that time, which were great to have. A lot of history of Gus Ferris, who he was, what he did. But in 1970, 
He's on probation, and he reports to his probation officer in person, like clockwork, every month. And there's one thing you got to understand about Seferis is he's respectful. He's arrogant as hell, but he's respectful. He's controlling, but he's respectful. He, he is like law and order. I mean, if, if authority gets in front of him, he's going to be, hey, I appreciate you guys, you know, law enforcement and what you do and all that kind of stuff. Very social like that. I don't think he means a thing of it, but that's just who he is, right? Former army, whatever. So like clockwork, he's reporting to his probation officer in person every month except one time. He reports by phone, and that one time is the day that Karen Benz is found. He reports by phone. And knowing the circumstances around Karen's death, this violent, clearly violent struggle, multiple stab wounds, what we learn is his DNA under her fingernails later, um, severe strangulation. It was a hell of a fight. And what we knew about Karen was she was a scrapper. You know, She was an inner city Akron girl, and she didn't take any crap off anybody. And so that was significant to me. Just, again, a piece of circumstantial evidence, but the timing of it I thought was pretty unique. Um, that he's going to call in his probation officer the day that her body is found to make his report, but he's not going to do it in person. And so, of course, then <clears throat> you have, uh, that's April again of 1970, and he stays on probation until he meets his wife, right? And there's all this information in those records about his wife, you know, wanting to take him to Huntington and getting permission to do that. And so he was still on probation when he was in Huntington, West Virginia, um, and just ended it in 1972, right before he attacked the girl from Huntington. Ended what, probation? Ended probation. They allowed him to mail in during his time in Huntington, West Virginia. He was allowed to mail in his reporting. Okay. And so he ends that probation. And within just a few months, December, he attacks the girl in, in Huntington, West Virginia. What's crazy about that case is all the things we talked about, but the timing is he's actually awaiting trial um, for that case. It was January of 72, right, that he attacked her. And he doesn't go to trial for that case until December. So the entire year of 1972, he ends his, his probation is over, and he comes back to Akron. And there, in 1972, which isn't on your list, but he attacks another girl. And this never came up at trial because the victim did not wish to testify. And I completely... All of these women, if they didn't testify, I was totally fine with that. We needed them, but I understand, you know. She was 16 years old. She was walking alone home. She was nine months pregnant. She's walking on East Market Street, and she's, uh, it's just, it's like 1130, and uh, she's walking home, and she sees some guys following her, and she gets nervous. And she's trying to think, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And up pulls this car. Hey, do you need a ride? It's Gus Ferris. And he's dressed incredibly well, has a tie, presents well, charming. I'll give you a ride. And she's looking back at these guys and she's like, yeah. So she gets in the car with Gus Ferris. And yeah. when she does that, game over, right? Because he's all charming. He drives around. And it's his, and it is his normal MO. It's like, hey, uh, I got to go to my parents' house to make a quick phone call. Would you mind? Or, hey, I got to stop at my sister's house. I got to do this. Hey, you mind if I run over here real quick? And he drives them around until they get to a secluded area, stops the car, and the attack is on. So he uh, forces her to perform oral sex on him, which she's forced to do, forces her down into the uh, 
floorboard of the passenger seat, just like he did the girl in Huntington, West Virginia. And then once the act is completed, uh, he drops her off. She immediately reports. Uh, now keep in mind, she's 16 years old. She's nine months pregnant. It's 1972. Okay? So again, um, you have... It's just so tragic. Just this cultural attitude. Yes, yeah. So, and, and others, you know. Yeah. So she reports and the uh, officers come out and God love them, you know, they take their report, but they interview her in front of her husband, her, her, her the guy she's going to have this baby with. And <laughs> you just don't do that, you know. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like contaminated, you know. Sure. But... They have a preliminary hearing or pretrial, and she has had her baby by this time, and she tells this story, which is very similar, and we'll hear again. I walk into the courtroom. I'm 16 years old. By this time, I had just had my baby. I'm kind of a single mom. I'm unmarried, whatever, right? And in walks Gus Seferis, a suit and tie, with his wife and her two children, and I'm made to feel like I am a slut, you know, like it's my fault. And after that preliminary hearing, she never returns to court and the charges are dropped. She, she's just like, I'm going to let this go. I don't want to. She was victimized by a system and that caused her to say, I'm done. And she spoke to me um, years later in 2018 when I located her. And she's a wonderful lady, too. And it, what's crazy about these cases is as I'm talking to all these uh, women he victimized. They haven't talked about these cases in, in decades and I have the reports in front of me, and they don't. And I'm asking them to go through it. And it's like they're reading to me. I mean, the, 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 the detail, the it's memories scary. are so powerful. Memories, yeah. It sure is. And so, you know, I don't, good victim. Hate to say that, you know, like, yeah. but, but good. You know, good yeah. victims, good witnesses. And, um, but she, uh, and she talked to me, and she was wonderful. And I said, well, look, we, we think we might be arresting this guy. I haven't been there yet. You know, I hadn't arrested him yet. But I said it. We might need you. Would you be willing to testify? She goes, I have to think about it. And I said, that's all I can ask you to do. And at the end of the day, she chose not to. And that was okay. That was okay. But um, I did stay in contact with her, and I did tell her that we got a conviction when we got the conviction, and she was happy to hear that. But um, So that's 1972. And then you move on to, and then, so that's middle of 1972. December of 1972, you have a hung jury, and now... And he's back in Akron, right? And he goes back for the trial. That's come, the hung jury in Huntington. In Huntington. So now he goes he's back in Akron. Now he's back in Akron again, right? Flip-flopping back. Moved back to Akron. They're living in Akron. Now it's January of 1973. And so January of 1973, um, he's cruising down the road. And there is a young woman who is uh, at the bus stop on North Main Street. And uh, this, is the, this is the only one that's slightly different, only in terms of time of day. And it's 11 a.m. And she has come into Akron because she's a single mom and she's trying to get on welfare. Never been on welfare before. She needs aid and she's trying to find it. She's the first time on a bus. She's taking the wrong bus. She's lost. She's at a bus stop out in front of St. Thomas Hospital in North Maine. She had just gotten off the wrong bus. She's trying to find the right bus to get downtown. And who pulls up? Captain Bohan has just begun his glimpse into the criminal career of Gus Seferis. Come back next time for part two of To Catch a Killer as Bohan continues his discovery of a shocking trail of violence, more death, 
and how even time in prison didn't stop this horrific predator. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to OhioMysteries.com. Ohio Mysteries is proud to be a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Head on over to KillerPodcasts.com to find more podcasts just like ours. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.